This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 550 for March 15th, 2017. Folks, welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. And uh, being March 15th, I have to tell you not to beware the Ides of March, but to beware the eyes of March. Perhaps it's an iPod that you thought you'd forgotten about that comes lurching out of the closet with a knife. <laughs> well, maybe that won't happen. Uh, I'm Glenn Fleischman. I'm your host here on the Macworld Podcast. Joining me is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hello, Glenn. I always think about the Ides of March. Just... Uh, has a resonance to it. There are Ides in other months. We just uh, only talk about this one because of Caesar being murdered and all. Yeah. I don't know if you heard the news. Caesar was murdered. It was only a couple thousand years ago. Spoiler but. alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Etsu Brute. Spoilers. I haven't lol. seen that episode yet. <clears throat> oh, my gosh. That's the next season of Game of Thrones, right? That's right. Beware the iPad. Oh, it should be Beware the iPads of March because they're coming next week, perhaps. The iPads are coming. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we have some follow-up first. Uh, so first up, uh, last week, WikiLeaks dumped a bunch of... Uh, what was alleged to be and seems to be uh, mostly confirmed was uh, analysis and um, some uh, – it's actually, it's an interesting batch of stuff from what was – from the CIA. I keep I wanting to hedge it because not every document has been checked. We don't know their sourcing and whatever, but it seems like this is actually legitimate uh, information that was leaked from the CIA probably uh, from a few years old to maybe as recently as last year. And it wasn't just um, exploits. It wasn't piles of code. It was, in fact, like uh, analyses of what was vulnerable, plus some things that were obviously put into production and were being used. And um, from uh, Apple almost immediately said, look, everything in here has been patched already um, or we're going to patch it soon. But because the code associated hadn't been released, uh, that gives them an opportunity to uh, make more fixes. And the news is that uh, after our, we recorded the last podcast, WikiLeaks said they're going to share the code part of the CIA leak with software makers before they release that to the general public, uh, giving them an opportunity to patch it. And while there are many critiques to make of WikiLeaks, and I have many, um, the fact is if you have vulnerabilities in operating systems or software, it um, seems like an appropriate thing to disclose those to the companies and make sure they have an opportunity to fix them. It's in the public interest and social good to be sure that you're not endangering people uh, randomly, potentially hundreds of millions or even billions of people, depending on the scope of the uh, flaws. That so, was my understanding too, but then isn't hasn't this been seen like a little like with a little bit of controversy like some people are like oh these companies shouldn't work with wikileaks and and i just but I, but yeah i thought that that was just good practices that you had to disclose flaws to the companies to patch them before you know anyone else found out there's a huge discussion to be had there susie i think because uh, wikileaks is you know has um I think we could say it's been morally compromised. Even if you agree with what it's done, it's not like they act in a consistent ethical manner. So, yeah, they're uh, all over the place. Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes, yeah. So they're, they're all over the place and have been for years. Julian Assange, the um, leader of the group, uh, it's like him, and there are some number of outside people, but a very small number. One person who was the spokesperson for a long time, like quietly apparently stopped being the spokesperson, even though he still supports the cause. Um, Assange has been, you know, uh, has allowed. Uh, what's the right way to say it? He has remained in the Ecuadorian embassy under, um, like, a diplomatic uh, uh, sanctuary uh, to avoid facing an inquiry against him in Sweden related to sexual assault. I think that's the fairest way to put it. And so he uh, he 
it's, it's been there for years. So we don't know his motivations. And, you know, there's also this argument that data is data. Like once you have it, then you just release it. Uh, but then people get harmed who are collateral. So WikiLeaks mm-hmm. had this idea at one point of being radically transparent, um, but they used yeah, to... they used to just dump everything, right? So well, at least no, this part, they held some back, no, but other times to, they have dumped everything and not redacted enough, and people are like, you're you know, giving away too, too much personal information. It's coming needed. on, though. They like uh, Recently, they've done some dumps in the last year that were damaging to individuals who certainly were collateral they had nothing they were mentioned it had nothing to do with whatever uh was going on but um in years past earlier in the wikileaks period they would be more careful about um even if it wasn't redacting they would they were uh they didn't just release everything released it in tranches they did more careful editing they work with uh journalistic organizations uh, like the guardian new york times um so they've kind of gone they went sort of rogue and um it's just it's a very complicated uh, moral situation and probably legal one. So I also wonder the companies them being able to work with WikiLeaks and receive this. There may be issues because the companies are not uh, journalism organizations, so receiving information mm-hmm. that has been stolen from by, from the CIA, um, which is a whole other thing because you know uh, the Ooh, person yeah. who stole the person who stole the data from the CIA ostensibly stole or leaked. Like they might be able to have whistleblower protections in certain cases if there's uh, evidence of law. You know, it's like it gets in this incredible um, morass. So I, but the flip side is too, that these uh, ostensibly spy uh, spy organizations and other groups like the FBI uncover flaws or contract with companies that have uncovered flaws in operating systems. And there is an ongoing argument about once those are discovered, rather than keep them in your cache of tools to use as for spycraft, you should immediately, especially with the U.S.-based companies like Google and Apple uh, and Microsoft, you should immediately be disclosing them to the companies so that they can't be exploited by other countries or criminals, right? Uh, So that's an issue that comes up as well. So the CIA obviously has, NSA, other groups, obviously have massive uh, amounts of exploits, well, I shouldn't say massive because there aren't that many necessarily out there, but they have significant exploits in reserve that they attempt to use for uh, exfiltration of data and uh, and spying. Um, and there is an ongoing policy debate about whether those should be, uh, like when the FBI, so remember uh, last year, <laughs> remember two years ago and then last year when the uh, FBI was trying to get the San Bernardino uh, phone decrypted and wanted Apple's help in making a, um, wanted Apple. Yeah, they were like, thing. have you asked the CIA? I think they can do that. And the FBI's like, no, the CIA won't talk to us. And yeah. And then the FBI those found voices some. are exaggerated, but I imagine that's kind of how it was. <laughs> how they but they, uh, they found some organization and there's some suspicion about which company they contracted that uh, ostensibly was able to decrypt the phone. And that means that that group had an iOS exploit which means that hundreds of millions of devices were potentially vulnerable, including those owned by Americans. So, you know, not a cut and dried issue. But I do appreciate no. that WikiLeaks is trying to exercise restraint. If they had dumped all of the code, it would have been a disaster, I think. Yeah, could have been. Yep, there's people just waiting, people looking for that code out there. Slightly related, um, this story I've written a little bit about, I think my latest uh, private eye, when that goes up, will be about this, is um, something like, it's like, uh, so this, you know, the Signal uh, messaging app, it's mm-hmm. one of the most secure uh, ways to send information from yes. end to end. And they just added, by the way, they added uh, video calling uh, just the other day. So you can just use Signal, you can tap and make video calls that are encrypted uh, better than anything on the planet, ostensibly. And Signal's protocol is based uh, is what uh, WhatsApp's messaging system is now based on as well, and it's used by other 
uh, apps, not iMessage, but other apps as well. And there's been a couple times recently, I reported uh, on one of these a few weeks ago when The Guardian wrote a story about a backdoor in Signal, or sorry, in WhatsApp, that turned out to be, they eventually, oh, Susie, I don't know if you realize this, I, I missed this, they eventually retracted the word backdoor because yeah. it's not a backdoor. And um, they revised the order article slightly, but it still remains uh, fundamentally inaccurate. And um, then with the WikiLeaks dump, WikiLeaks statement said that um, WhatsApp and Signal and iMessage, other messaging apps could be intercepted, not because they were broken, but because the uh, operating system flaws that had been uh, discovered in the in the cache could let um, an attacker directly capture input and output from your operating system. So if someone can crack your phone, they can see everything you're typing and reading and so forth. You don't, it doesn't need to crack the, it's, this is why, and the, the head of um, Open Whisper Systems that makes Signal, uh, Moxie Marlin, uh, uh, a spike, uh, great name, not his real name, but a great name. <laughs> he, uh, I always love Moxie's name. Moxie said that um, uh, it shows how effective uh, uh, messaging apps, Signal and others have been at encrypting the message because they can't now break into messaging systems Easily, so they're going after operating systems, so they can't do wholesale. You know, a criminal group or a government agency or a foreign government, uh, not your own government, trying to break uh, encryption. They have to uh, break an operating system to get in, uh, which is a big deal. But so that story got misreported as Signal is now vulnerable. It's like, ah, oh, so I feel like I don't think there's a conspiracy, but there's definitely security experts have been trying to push back against this notion that Signal is vulnerable when nothing's been shown about Signal uh, because yeah. everything besides Signal is less secure than Signal. So you could argue is some group or groups trying to get people to use Signal less because it's hard to break. And I don't think that's happening, but the effect is people are being a little turned off by it. Yeah, it's hard to explain some of the stuff sometimes without, um, you know, you want people to have information, but you don't want them to panic. And it really, yeah, you just have to find people who are good at um, explaining it the right way. And I feel like our community has a lot of those people, you included. So, um, yeah, it's like when the device is compromised, everything on it is compromised. So then, you know, even the the most encrypted service can't help you because, you know, those messages end up on the device, like readable. So, um, yeah, it's, um, people need to, to be aware, but, um, it's, you know, still a good idea to use signal. This reminds me vaguely of, um, my friend, Steve Manis used to, uh, this longtime technology writer now semi-retired. He uh, said years ago when e-readers started to come out and like the Kindle and, uh, there's this whole issue about copy protection. He's like, look, as long as you can read it, you can't copy protect it ultimately. All someone has to do, one person buys a book, takes pictures of the screen, runs it through OCR, and your copy protection is broken. So all the effort being put into protect to keep from property protect or keep uh, uh, files protected, he thought was ultimately for naught. And it is sort of true. You can get almost any book of any popularity is just been ripped to text or some other format, often ripped to a Kindle compatible format. And you can find it online. doesn't make it right. and doesn't make piracy good, but it's also, um, it, it, I, I found sort of a tie in like the issue with signal is, um, Oh, I'm sorry. That was the third story too. I didn't even mention this one. His third story was someone, I think the Washington wall street journal or somebody was like, well, you know, you can take screen captures of the signal app in iOS. I think Android prohibits it actually, 
Um, iOS does not. And the issue is like, yes, because you can look, I could take another device and take a picture of a phone. So screen capture is convenient, but it's not like I couldn't take a picture. <laughs> I mean, it's just funny. You're like, well, screen capture is bits. I can take a picture with another camera or phone or whatever that's bits. So, and again, then security experts, the same sort of folks slipped in and said, this is not really, a, you know, yes, it'd be good if it was disabled. Ah, you know, again, like, come on. <laughs> so so um, we need an app where I can press my phone against my head and just think of thoughts. Exactly. And then the phone would send that fully encrypted end to end and it would buzz your phone and then you would hold it against your head. And if like, you know, the exact fingerprint of your head matched up, exactly. um, it would, it would buzz the, the the thought right into your head, but it would never be written down or viewed in, in any way. I like it. We, we have the ultimate, right, if it leaves your head, um, well, then the thought police will come after you. I was also thinking, it reminds it's me of the- It's very hashed. It's just hashed into like some hashed. vibrations. Uh, Vibration hash. Reminds me, of course, of the song that uh, Pete Seeger made famous, uh, Degadonkins and Fry, which is, uh, the, my thoughts is, Degadonkins and Fry, my thoughts freely travel. It's an old German folk song about uh, how- um, no, no Duke or Dictator. Uh, my thoughts will not cater to Duke or Dictators. Everything in your head is still your own. For now, until they come out with brain scanners that scan for bad ideas. Speaking of bad ideas, um, AT&T. Oh, <laughs> uh, we love AT&T. Um, we're still in the price wars, Susie. Like, uh, we're not covering every nuance of this. I think um, uh, Macworld and TechHive have been posting stories about it. Um, and some other sites that are a little more obsessive about every move cellular makers are taking have have more accounts too, but uh, since um, since uh, uh, who was the one who who lit the fire here? It wasn't Sprint. I'm forgetting which it was. It was T-Mobile. It T-Mobile. Did they light the wire unlimited? It has been it's this usually race T-Mobile. That yeah. So uh, AT and T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. Uh, I mean Sprint. It, there's also Sprint. Are <laughs> in this battle over uh, what unlimited plans will be now, and um, it's kind of all over the place. So the latest thing is AT and T added a prepaid plan. Uh, one of its GoPlay plans for 60 bucks with unlimited service with the provisos that it's a three megabit per second cap. So that's less than half of the average speed that people or that uh, some of the testing groups have found for AT&T's LTE network. It has that 22 gigabyte per month or per billing cycle uh, limit after which your packets may be deprioritized. So I don't think they'll be throttled. I think under the previous prepaid plans, you got throttled way down and they have a, uh, uh, they have a cheaper plan that has a limited amount of data and you get throttled. In this case, I think we're still in the same prioritization situation. So your service will, speed will be uh, varied by how busy the cellular area you're in is. 40p video for streaming and no tethering for 60 bucks a month. Um, and, but So this is prepaid. Postpaid is where you have credit and you, um, you're paying. They let you do whatever you want with your service. And they bill you for the difference at the end of the month. And uh, prepaid, you pay everything in advance, and there's no extras. You just pay that, and you pay as you go for other stuff. Um, so if you're a heavy user of your phone for, like, audio streaming, and you just maybe use it, like, instead of a computer, and you're not, you know, like, you're, you're doing all your email and web surfing and stuff, like, from your phone, there are a lot of people who, you know, don't have a computer and just have a phone. This would be a great plan for yeah. them. As long as you're not trying to do a lot of video streaming. Before 480p video to a lot of phones would be, you know, serviceable. It's good for, I think, like a, a teenager plan. Yeah. I was thinking because then it gets you out of the overage situation. Um, you're not paying like $100. I mean, you could pay 
Uh, they don't, you know, teenagers don't necessarily need tethering or you don't want to give it to them. You let them so use to the To nerds like us, no tethering sounds like a deal breaker. Oh, but horrible. there's a lot of people who like don't even know what that is and like we just wouldn't care. Oh, yeah. Some people live on their phones and they, they have a, you know, some kind of streaming box at home or it may even be like a, yeah. a Chromecast or an Amazon Fire or an Apple TV. And um, they live on the phone and they have a computer at work, but they don't have another computer. And I, I realize yeah. it's very strange to me. And I bet our listeners are probably largely in the what category about that, but um, it's an increasing trend. And I can see it. I mean, I've traveled sometimes where I had the computer and I really didn't need it. It was more for a bigger screen than actually utility. So it's a part of the change of things. All right, that's our follow up. Uh, let's move into some news stories this week. It's uh, there's not a, a lot of anything big happening. Um, been a slow week. It's been a whole big. Um, I put this first. This is slightly follow up, so I'm putting it here. Um, uh, I was wrote recently for Tech Hive about HomeKit and kind of the state of the ecosystem because it felt like uh, HomeKit has is moving very slowly. Although I gotta say, I think Apple. We talked about this before, but I, I've saw, seen some other interesting. Uh, discussion since is that with the internet of things being so terrible lately (laughs) (laughs) yeah that home kit people are like oh gosh apple these things are moving slowly and being released slowly because apple isn't letting people do bad work or or, i mean they're certifying it's got a good opportunity because people want things that are simple to install that work really seamlessly with their phone without you know a lot of jumping around between apps really secure and that are very very secure and i think apple has that you know they're secure and like they were made with like security is one of the things that they thought about you know it's not just like oh here's like some parts off a shelf and we cobble them together and like i guess we'll slap a password on it but like security is like really baked in really well from the get-go that was these a devices. That was a beautiful description of the design process for probably 90% of IoT things. That was right. exactly I mean, what you just said. It's, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> maybe slap a password on it too. That's perfect. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like they'll, they'll, they'll you know, try to protect it at the end, but like it's like HomeKit's really, they, they really think about it. Like the, the whole protocol is very security-minded. So, you, have to, um, you have to license and buy a special chip from Apple yeah. or Apple design chip that handles some of the aspects. And, yeah, and, and it, they have to get approved. Like there's mm-hmm. some things like um, the – like I just – I wrote recently about the Apple Watch straps as we discussed. And like there's, there's a made-for-Apple Watch program – it's literally just selling the lugs. Like anyone can buy them or you can make an Apple Watch strap without the lugs. But like, so that's just one extreme end of the spectrum. Like they're very, like they could not be more hands off. Like I could go order like a hundred Apple Watch lugs and like, you know, make friendship bracelet versions. And actually that's a great idea. I just <laughs> thought of right here. Copyright good. Susie. Okay. There's anyway. Um, but where was I going with this? Oh, and on the extreme other end of that spectrum is HomeKit, where like that they're tested and certified, and Apple yeah. is like you you can't just like call something HomeKit without you know willy nilly. Yeah, I think it's uh, it feels like a good thing right now. Like I mean, people, uh, I, I feel like HomeKit's a bit of a mess because uh, I mean I've read the I just read and we've talked about this too, so I won't reiterate it to listeners, regular listeners. You don't have to hear us. Talk about the same thing. I just don't hear about people who have these lovely, wonderful HomeKit experiences unless they carve out a really specific area and stick to it. Like once you start to get devices across areas, some of which work on multiple systems, um, you know, one person, uh, Dave Hamilton, somewhere about how, you know, if I, I added this device and it shows up as a fan, a light switch or a timer or something like that. And it's one piece of hardware. I forgot what it mm-hmm. was even like a light bulb. Oh yeah, I have one that shows up as a, a switch, and it has like a, like a little nightlight kind of integrated into the front of the. You know, it's like a plug, and you can plug in a lamp, but then it also has a little nightlight on the plug itself, and it shows up as two devices. 
Yeah, so that's because I if mean, you're setting a scene, you can be like, okay, now turn the nightlight on, and then like this other scene, like turn on the lamp that's plugged in. So, I, like, I get why they have to do it, but it ends up being a little clunky. The presentation and not as good. But so the the hook this week though is that Apple uh, revised its HomeKit directory, which seems like a minor thing. This is at apple.com. You don't have to know the URL. We'll have it in the, the show notes, but it's apple.com slash iOS slash home slash accessories. And it's useful because the uh, previous directory is kind of a mess. I was using it to try to find products and the new one is much better organized around like here, you know, what kind of thing you're looking for. And it's still, they have long lists of stuff, but um, it's nice to you see can just that. just click thermostats and see all the thermostats. If you're yeah. like, oh, I haven't gotten into HomeKit because there's not a thermostat. Guess what? There's like 20. You just d- didn't know. I'm keeping my home as, <laughs> I'm keeping my home as stupid as possible for now. Like if HomeKit wins, actually HomeKit doesn't have to win. What I want is I want to know that there's stability and reliability and ease. And when that comes and there's an and the prices drop enough, when that comes, I'll do it. Same thing I'm thinking about with mesh networking. I have a workable Wi-Fi network. It's I've got relatively complete coverage, um, and I've already spent money on the equipment. I'm not going to go out and spend three hundred to five hundred dollars to get quote unquote better coverage because my coverage is fine. But I get email every day or three from people trying to figure out how to improve their Wi-Fi networks, and it's like, look, if you have three hundred to five hundred dollars to spend. Just buy, you know, mesh. And that's the same thing with HomeKit. If there's a really particular itch you kind of scratch with like timers or you travel frequently and you want to make sure your lights go on and off and you have to have an alarm and a thermostat and a smoke detector, all these things that, um, you know, route through an Apple TV or an iPad, you leave at home so you can check them remotely. Um, I mean, some of the devices will do that anyway, but the uh, HomeKit hub thing is a help. Then it's great. Like, I think there's a lot of use cases that make sense for people now but I don't feel it's as um, fully fleshed out for most folks. Um, and who was I talking to the day? Someone was like, yep, yeah, you know, my girlfriend comes over and she's not delighted that she can't turn on the lights. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, well, that's the other thing. Like you have to really like, – there's certain ways. Like there's some – like I, I need to start exploring like the wall switches. Yeah. Because then I can use my phone and like the rest of my family can just walk up to the wall and like hit a switch. I got a bunch of those. I'm doing some testing for Tech Hive. I think I have four – Different. I don't think they're all HomeKit, but I've got four different switches or five, two from one maker uh, to test this week. And, um, you know, I, it's actually, I'm a good person to test because I'm uh, skeptical about the benefits, but I also understand that, the, like I say, there are specific use cases that are good. So I'm going to cast yeah. my, my gimlet eye against these and see what they. I wouldn't mind doing a thermostat because that can actually save you money. And then, yeah. um, like yesterday, my kid and I left for t-ball practice in kind of a hurry and I left the back door open and the back door goes to like you know a fenced in yard so you would have to like first like get into my yard and then notice the back door was open so and my husband came home like an hour later so it was fine but if you know I had a sensor on that door um, it could alert me, you know, when my phone left my home network that, hey, like the back door is hanging open and I see that you're gone. But I would have to really set that up and it would have to be like, you're gone, your husband's gone. Like, no, you know, and like, so some of the times I might get that alert and be like, oh, no, no, like the kids there with the babysitter, they've got the back door open. That's fine. So, like, but it would be nice. Like, I, you know, I felt silly. I would have, I could have gone back, but um, I didn't, I didn't realize. I don't have a, uh, a security camera yet, but I have, we've had so many break ins. My, my neighborhood is very safe in terms of violent crime and we have a super high level. See, Seattle has, compared to New York, I checked this out a couple years ago. We have, like three to six times the per capita um, property crime theft rate. Like New York Yikes. beats us in murders, and even it's not very many murders anymore because the crime rate's gone way down there too. But we have so so. I mean, I think 
every car in our block, I think if it's left open any night ever, it gets broken into. Our neighbors across the street just had their car broken into, and they're like, we may have left it unlocked. We almost always lock it, and there's an alarm. It's like, so you forget they have little children, tiny children. They forget once. And so the idea, I've actually thought about getting a security camera to point out and just have it, you know, have a 30-day run on it. When a neighbor says, I got broken into, they go, oh, let me check my footage and oh, yeah. see what comes up. Um, Our so entire that like, neighborhood next door is just people being like, can everyone check their security cameras oh, and find out like who did this Oh, man, this we should that. have some kind of pooled footage thing. Um, but so things like that I, I, I dig. And um, I think I mentioned on a previous episode of this podcast, my uh, the alarm, the only smart thing I have in the house is a Ethernet-wired non-cloud-based alarm system. It just it just sends data in and you can unlock it remotely. And uh, the app updated. So if you, you can set a geofence, which I did, and if you're more than X hundred feet away from your house and you left the alarm off, you get a notification. And so sometimes I drive away and uh, I've been pretty good about remembering to leave it on, to turn it on when I leave and there's no one in the house, but I'll drive away and my wife and kids are home and it'll say, uh, hey, you geofence. And I'm like, oh, good. Okay, that's great. Like, I don't have to turn it on, but how cool that this works. That is super useful um, if you're in a neighborhood that like mine that is apparently <laughs> full of crime, a property crime. So property crime is okay. Like, I, you know, I'll miss my things, but uh, I'd rather people aren't being beaten or something. So there we go. If you have to have crime... Ask for property crime by name. Don't have crime. Uh, Susie, <laughs> speaking of a crime, it's a crime that we don't know whether four iPad models are coming next week. It's not a crime. It's not a crime at all. Uh, but there's been uh, rumors that there'll be four new iPad models. And there also been counter rumors, right, that there might not be <laughs> anything coming next week at all either, right? So we, we're not sure yeah. what's going to happen. Well, the, the, so the rumor we wrote about yesterday or whenever was, yeah, there might be new ones as soon as next week, um, which would make it like, – and it didn't say anything like that. That means no event for sure, but – it seems like if they were going to have an event next week, they would have had to send invites out by now, and they have so. not sent invites out. So uh, maybe they would just release some if they're going to maybe. So maybe there'll be like a stagger thing, and they'll update the existing ones, the um, 9.7 inch Pro and the 12.9 inch Pro that we have already. They'll you know say okay, these are refreshed. Uh, poof, and then maybe they'll have another event later for like the new sizes. If they're going to make a mini sized pro and or this new 10.5, 10.1, whatever, yeah. like 10 inch pro they're talking about making. So we might see something like that. But I kind of like that doesn't seem like an Apple thing to do. It seems like they would just put no. them all out at once. Yeah. So I wonder if they're um, waiting on a production Digitimes line Times is saying now make maybe April, like okay. early April would be the rumor. I mean, personally, that's kind of what I'm cheering for because I would really like to go skiing the week of the 26th. And <laughs> so, yeah, my, my family is annoyed that I don't know when the event is. And I'm like, I swear nobody knows. And nobody knows. Like, yeah, well, we want to go skiing. Well, I wonder, too, um, <laughs> Don't we, don't we think – we suspect that Apple is always monitoring its um, production line situation, and so it, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't show a model until it's prepared to know when it could start shipping in bulk, which is often a few weeks after they start shipping. So there's like some kind of staggered thing that I don't know – I'm sure somebody on the supply side has – yeah. Sometimes chart. they can just say, okay, like we'll announce it on Tuesday, we'll take pre orders on Friday, and then you'll get it in like two weeks. Like it doesn't have right. to be immediate. Like they're in stores today. Like that's always nice. But, and if they're really going to also have like the red iPhone or um, the, uh, 
souped up iPhone SE oh, that yeah, those yeah. could be like those could be like the ready to go today and then like these iPads could roll out later if there's some issue. I don't know. Although my so my suspicion was that uh that when they do one of those deals where like, you know, pre orders and two weeks we ship, they've built up an inventory so they don't they don't make the announcement until they know they have a sufficient units they can get into the country within that two week or whatever time frame. But they haven't ramped up the production line fully yet so that they have inventory built up, but they're not nearly at the level they need to when they hit maximum sales. So there's like a bolus that comes out, but they often, as we've seen, they'll sometimes sell through that. And then there's like a four to six week delay because the uh, production line isn't up. So I feel like there's some kind of dynamic there as an Apple tea leaf reader. Apple tea, hmm, that might be good. Um, But, you know, iPad launches aren't like quite as... You know, demandy no, those iPhone ones. They're not selling as many units, and it's just—I don't think it's as big a deal. This is like a this is like a a bump to keep getting uh, to convince people who haven't to update and to find some new to new yeah. buyers. Yeah. Um. Next item on our list is one that is near and dear to uh, readers of certain publications. Uh, our friend Kirk McElhern is writes frequently for MacWorld, and uh, we'll talk about another article he just wrote for MacWorld. He has a piece on his uh, website, his personal site, Kirkville. K-I-R-K-V-I-L-L-E.com. And it's advice for disabling autoplay video uh, in all of the four top major browsers. So Safari, Chrome, Firefox, and then Opera, which is still used by a lot of people. It's kind of a distant number four, I think, but uh, it's still out there. Someone gave him instructions for that. And so there are extensions. Uh, Safari, Susie, I don't know uh, what you have installed. I won't ask you. You can confess if you want to. Uh, but um, Safari is a particularly tough nut with autoplay video because yeah, get Safari. Yeah, the click to play extension that people relied on the developer, there were changes in um, uh, Sierra and I forget if it was in the latest Safari or it was some combination where uh, the same access wasn't available that allowed him to do what he did. So he stopped developing it. And I, I think it was a volunteer effort. If I remember, I don't think there was, maybe there's donation where, um, so you can't get a new version of click to play. And that was actually a very effective thing. Uh, so Kirk documents some, uh, he had provided some information and then his readers came in with a bunch of additional terminal based things. You can type in that disable autoplay, but they still let you click to play or enable a plugin or whatever. And um, it's very interesting. So uh, if you happen to visit sites that play uh, video when you load them and you don't want that video to play automatically, although you might click to play it later, then uh, read Kirk's blog. I don't know any sites like that, though. I don't know any sites. I do. Really? <laughs> yeah, there's lots of sites that do that. Actually, I think it's is it Bloomberg. There's one that, so IDG, we know, does some autoplay video. Way too much. Way too much. We've talked um, about this. Everyone yeah, knows well, where we stand. Also, I know. And it's also your the ad team. You know, there's a, there's and a everyone Chinese knows model. that I have no control. No and control. it's one of but, the major frustrations of my job. But, you know, there's a lot of nice things, too. So I just keep on keeping on. The worst part isn't the autoplay video. The worst part is that it shows old autoplay video. That's, oh, yeah. Yeah, or, or yeah and it's autoplay. pulling in, like, stuff about Windows. And I know, I know, I, I know. know. Nothing you can it's do about it, but that's the – I mean, I would be okay with autoplay video if it were relevant to my interests and needs. Yeah. Uh, but Bloomberg, Yeah, I go think, ahead and block it. Like, it's yeah, totally fine Kirk's with me. Story, <laughs> so, Kirk uh, – or, sorry, uh, Bloomberg, I think, is the worst. There's one site where you go and when you – there's video at the top that you have to click to play, like, a big, you know, video window. And you're reading a story, and as you scroll down, it 
pops it into a small window on the side. And oh, yeah. I think ours it, just started doing that. Oh, I hate that so much. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it does it on when they show the sidebar autoplay video, the irrelevant one that yeah. you don't even want to see. I'm not sure that one follows you down. I, oh, if there's I really a, if there's don't a know. main video, it drops it down. Yes. The well, main, that's if okay. there's if a main video, it, like though. the article is like a video and then it's like, you know, here's smart paragraphs about the video. Watch the video for more. Right. Like that video will follow you down as you scroll through the article. It's, Sometimes we put the videos on longer articles, but sometimes the article is just a stub, as we call it in the biz, for uh, to contain the video. Like, here's a video. It's like those paintings. The eyes follow you. The video follows you. And our you videos end up being, like, our video team is great. They do a really good Your job. Like, I like great. the videos yeah. we make, but I definitely get the frustration of, like, you only want them when you want them. And autoplay is just, it's rude. Your, no, your video team does a fantastic, I've been in your offices and you don't have, like, a fancy video studio. You have some really nice. Oh, we do now. Yeah, we oh, have, like, do? two. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to, oh, well, all right. You have a fancy video studio now. But I was going to say, you guys, well, even before you did, the video team did an incredibly well, a good job in, like, a relatively standard office with some, you know, nice room to shoot it i didn't realize you had a video they've been investing a lot in video that's great i think the video right and it's like so the the complaint isn't necessarily the video is bad it's just irrelevant and if i I go to a video page at an idg property i'm delighted to see the quality of video and shooting so there you go uh, I need to do more how-to videos so the how-to pages that have that annoying autoplay video at least have autoplay videos about Max. Uh, it's true. That would be nice. It's also, <laughs> that I would see, be something. Well, it's also, I'm looking at an article about Sierra and it's like, this is Dan Moore at uh, Macworld Blah. And I'm like, this like, is... <laughs> here's some tips for iOS 7. Like, I know. Like, like, we, I, yeah, I try to go through and it's... That's good. Oh, I got to hear from my Don't old friends, former Macworld employees who are... Now onto other things. Can you hear from them That's from time to time? This is Serenity Caldwell from Macworld. No, Serenity, you've been gone for years. <laughs> um, it's like ghosts, ghosts in the IDG machine. Kirk also wrote, Susie, an article for Macworld <laughs> that uh, doesn't mention that kind of video, but he wrote a, a really great up-to-date piece about how to rip DVDs and Blu-rays. Uh, and I, it's terrific because uh, Handbrake, I think, came out with a 1.0 version not that long ago. Um, it's last year, but I don't think that long ago. It's been in like beta for a bazillion years, although very workable. And um, I right now don't have the need to rip anything. I have like I have the Blu-rays and DVDs. I buy more Blu-rays these days. We were talking about that, you know, versus rent because of the very low cost to own. Um, but a lot of people uh, have multi-terabyte drives and are uh, ripping stuff with great abandon. They just leave stuff to rip. They've ripped their whole collection. Or they buy a disc and rip it and then, you know, stick the disc in a box somewhere. Um, we have the, uh, I think I've mentioned this before. We have like the, the banker's boxes of CDs in our basement that prove we own the discs. <laughs> we haven't played, you know, they've been in there for 10 years or more now since I ripped them into iTunes, but we have them. We can prove we own them. Um, but so Kirk went through the, um, latest uh, versions of a couple different apps and he links to other articles written in the past with more tweaky settings, but uh, it's really great. Um, the kind of thing that you have to put a lot of dedication into understand, and then you can share that kind of knowledge. So somebody like me can go like, okay, I'm going to click that setting and that setting and hit go. I don't have to spend 15 hours testing different ripping options. So thank you, Kirk for that. Um, Susie, did you catch this David Pogue piece? You may have heard of David Pogue. <laughs> I yeah, I saw yeah, I saw people talking about it, and um, I used to ride the bus um, in the morning with a vision impaired guy, and I saw you know I used to see him 
using his phone and he would um he had like some vision so he would hold it like an inch away from his face but then yeah he was also a big voiceover user and it is like i mean like so that's the lead of this thing like david poe was backstage at a conference and saw a blind woman using a phone and she had voiceover just on like the fastest thing and like the screen was completely off so her battery could probably go for days and she was navigating just tapping like a you know a blank piece of glass and just yeah, whipping yeah. through like so fast with oh just a robot you're, voice like talking super fast. And it's it's really impressive. When your battery you're, life, right? Doesn't he mention that yeah. your battery life is insane because you yeah. de- the display off while you're yeah. using it. And he's so he says, I'll just read like a sentence. He says, ever since that day, I've been like a kid at a magic show. I wanted to know how it's done. So, yeah, he 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 spent, you know, some time with with someone who who can't really see and uh, and, and showed them, you know, he showed them like all the stuff that you can do with voiceover. And it's like, you know, I turn it on by accident sometimes if I'm meaning to double click the home button and I triple click it. And if you, you know, if you don't, if you're not using it, it's really jarring. It's very fast. It's pretty loud and it's talking. It says everything you touch on the screen and that's a lot of stuff. So, but yeah, for people who use it, it's so awesome and so um, life changing. So this is a really cool story. He did a great job. It's yeah, I'd never heard anything this comprehensive about it. I'm so glad. And it's mm-hmm. um, it's funny, you know. I, I'm I think accessibility is one of the most misunderstood areas of user interface design because um, and user experience because it's people see it as they don't see themselves as someone who needs accessibility unless they have a specific you know, impairment or situation or, um, you know, inability or different ability, whatever it is. Um, like if you don't put yourself in that category, you're like, well, why do I need this kind of thing? I'm, you know, whatever normative is, which doesn't really exist when in fact accessibility is great for everybody. So remember when, um, was it iOS eight that introduced, uh, um, the, uh, parallax view? I think so. And my friend, uh, Jenny leader, uh, wrote a blog post about how it gave her nausea, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and which went viral because everyone's like, "Oh, that's what's going on." And yeah, I didn't and then like it either. Very shortly after, Apple reduced the motion parallax a little bit, mm-hmm. and they added a switch in accessibility because mm-hmm. it is, you know, what percentage of people develop uh, can develop uh, nausea from um, that it is not a one percent of people. So that's an accessibility issue. Some people need higher, who have ostensibly normal vision, or what would be categorized within a normative range. Higher contrast is useful. Um, there are a ton of accessibility features I use. I've got the three. Yeah, Jason button. Snell just wrote a column on those too. Oh, that's great. Like. I, I have a, the three-click uh, home button thing set to do invert colors, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not exactly night mode, but it's fantastic when you need it because it works everywhere throughout the system. Um, so this is this is great. And Susie, this reminds me of that discussion we had some months ago when uh, I think uh, oh I'd seen it linked in, in John Gruber's uh, during Fireball about um, how in uh, the home button decision when apple went with a haptic home button it was partly because um the speculation was that in a lot of countries especially china people believe the home button breaks with usage so because it's so expensive relative to the standard of living people don't use the home button and use this incredible 
accessibility menu thing that most people in America are probably unaware of even exists. And I turned it on once and you're like, holy smokes, you know, mm-hmm. and um, this is that same kind of thing. It, it, uh, is this a mixed metaphor? I say it opens my eyes when I, I don't think I'm supposed to say that. It's, <laughs> it's, um, there's it's some really cool revealing. examples in here. Like, I mean, like you can use, the camera app has voiceover. So you don't think of like, you know, blind oh my God, people taking a lot of pictures. But so he can hold up the camera and it'll say one face centered focus lock. And then like later, if he's looking at it, it'll say like he can like be flipping through photos in the camera roll and it'll tell him like there's one face that's slightly blurry. And then he can like, you know, delete that picture. And oh my that's God. crazy. I expect we'll see more of a different category of things too, based on this is uh, David linked to um, uh, government data that only about uh, 10 10 or 15% of visually impaired people see no lighter color at all. And the fellow he spoke with, Joseph Donowski, uh, who's uh, in the um, securities uh, industry or private client banker, I should say, more specifically, um, he he can see, uh, I think, large patterns of light. So there's uh, – and I, I know some people with extremely poor vision who are uh, can still drive, but they're at the limits of what correction is. At some point, they'll be unable to drive. And they use various magnification. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, when we get to the next level, not a Google Glass, but like an, uh, a contact lens style mm-hmm. thing, being able – this is going to – I think – I don't think I understood how much that could change – the world for people who are vision impaired but can perceive colors in certain ways because something over your eye could actually map the outside world to your level of impairment and enhance what you could see because it would just show you let it could filter everything out except hard edges so you could see outlines i mean whatever like everyone's impairment can be slightly different um but it's exciting to think about that um and also, I mean, I don't. It sounds like Pogue's going to teach himself how to use this because you can use it in your pocket. You basically don't, you know, with headphones, you can yeah. use it with the screen off, get enormous battery life, and do it without anyone knowing you're using a computer because you could just be in your pocket with your finger. So it's kind of a superpower, right? Yeah. I love it. I love it. This is great. This is what. Well, this is you know. One of the things I love about technology is that it's an amplifier, right? It's a human augmentation or technology should be human augmentation. And when we talk about um, the robot revolution that's putting people out of work, there are certain kinds of professions that had extremely repetitive jobs that were very, very bad for people to do. They're like literally destroy their bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Those jobs were relatively easy replaced by sometimes by mechanization and then by robotics, which are more flexible and programmable and whatever. Although a lot of robots are very non-programmable. They just do a certain kind of thing in a very complicated way. But the next generation of robots coming, this is what I think is the big misnomer. I am not some kind of, I'm not an economist robot expert, but I've talked to so many people in the industry. Human augmentation is the next giant wave. We've only seen a fraction of what it's going to be. And people and robots working side by side uh, and uh, technological uh, augmentation like contact lens, computing, and so forth are going to dramatically change our lives for the better, I think. The other thing I loved about this article was that it gave me sort of a new appreciation for Siri because, like, I love to bag on Siri. You guys hear me, like, just (laughs) rip Siri all the time. But, I mean, like, you know, they talk about how he knows where all his app icons are, but he can just ask Siri, like, to launch something. And like, so if you got really good, again, like, at, at, at using Siri because you just relied on it and you knew how to, like, phrase everything so she'd understand you and answer and not just give you some quippy, like, quip. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. So, I mean, he can be out in the world and just be like, where am I? And Siri will tell him, like, exactly where he is. And just, like, little oh, things like that. that that I would never, like, think to use Siri for. It's like, 
it's like, you know, kind of when I rip on Siri, that's like, I feel like now that's a little bit of my privilege showing. that I can just look at the map and I don't need to like ask. I can. Yeah. So, yeah. Besides being able to to have your screen off all the time, just being able to like talk to your headphones and not even need to to get your phone out is is pretty cool. That's amazing. And he also mentions the uh, the Lyft uh, or Uber thing where he can. um, uh, what a difference that makes in terms of hail- he, he, lives, he works in New York City. Um, uh, hailing a cab, if you can't tell whether the cab has someone in it or not or is on or off duty or whatever in service, mm-hmm. it's a pain. He doesn't have to do it anymore. He just says, he calls Lyft. He, call, he says he calls the driver when the car is nearby and just describes himself so the driver can spot him. And that's it. And, you know, this is, again, I will, I will reiterate my robot thing, is that, like, like for any flaws that Uber had in building a new industry and, and with now many competing car uh, services like that um it eliminates it it helps people with disabilities there's issues with these services not being equipped to take wheelchairs and things which is a whole other thing um or service dogs and things like that which is a legal thing we won't get into but ostensibly it levels the playing field for being able to get a cab and it also can often take out a racial component although there's again some issues with that as well but um there's a the potential for for removing certain kinds of discrimination and also enhancing the ability for people to do things. Um, I was fascinated by this app, uh, Kurzweil. Uh, Ray Kurzweil is the company founder. Um, I don't know if he's still involved in the company, but he's the, the genius who's oh, going to yeah, live forever. Oh, yeah, this sounds amazing. Kurzweil's KNFB Reader. So I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. And my wife's vision is not fantastic. And uh, so I was like, oh, this is maybe something she should get. And I go to the app store. It's a $100 app. Well, yeah, but, but I mean – Fantastic. It sounds kind of magic. So oh, what yeah, this I'm does not, is I'm you can point it at. A, so in in the story, um, the gentleman uses it. To, if he has to read a printed document that isn't, you know, in Braille, um, he can point this app at it, and it'll just OCR it and start reading it to him, um, like immediately. No, it's fantastic. So, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing. It the sounds price really cool. Yeah, this is probably yeah. Well, the... it's very pro. I'm sure the technology is. But and then like we've, I'm looking at the screenshots right now, and you know, like it it, it looks. It looks very utilitarian, I guess we'll say. If you don't have $100 in your pocket, of course, the other thing you could do is you can buy something like um, – I use uh, PDF Pen. Uh, what's it called? I can't remember the uh, the version for um, iOS is – well, I have JotNot – oh, sorry, Scan Plus from, PDF, uh, from Smile who make PDF Pen – uh, software and that has uh, OCR also, but you have to do more manipulation. You have to, you know, you have to take pictures. You have to tap a button. Then you can ex- export the text. It's not like a "Hey, read this to me" thing. Um, and also, Kurzweil is the best OCR in the business. They license their stuff to everybody. Um, but there's there a, there's a gradation of it from you know about five bucks to a hundred bucks. But God, if you need this, then a hundred dollars yeah. is not. It says you know you can check like your restaurant tab and just like little things. Like you never sort of think of like all the things that you know if you couldn't read that to know you'd have to like really trust that people were ripping you off. So like just little things like that, and then this can just do it. It'll also send it to a braille display. Yes, which is yes. cool. So and it's fully yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, I, I feel like in the olden days when people paid reasonable amounts of money for software and understood the value, like $100 was on the higher side for like a consumer-oriented product, but it wasn't unreasonable. Now it's like $100, but I could get something for five bucks. Like, well, no, this software is part of a many, many years of development. It's very specialized and it's very good. So, And you're going to use it like every day. Yeah, so. if you need it, it's the thing you have. Um, 
Very yeah. cool story. We'll link it up. Great. You should check it out. Nice I love job, a story. It's so hard these days to find a technology story that just changes your view of the world. And I felt like yeah, it really did. It really did. Yeah. Yay, David. David, former Macworld writer, should point out, former New York Times writer. Now, Yahoo. He's one of the remaining uh, folks at Yahoo. That's where he's made his home for a few years. Interesting thing that uh, uh, so they've Yahoo has changed its news department. But I think Pogue is still the uh, one of the bellwethers there. And he reaches people who don't read other technology news very clearly from what we can tell. Um, Last story we got for this week is uh, synchronized YouTube watching, this piece of software called Uptime. And originally, we weren't going to throw it on the, the podcast. We thought we'd talk about it for a few minutes because we started talking about how we weren't going to include it. And then we started talking about it so much. We're like, no, no, we should talk about this because uh, uh, Susie, I, I occasionally do this. I've watched – sometimes I watch a movie – um, with somebody else, somewhere else, or I know we're watching at the same time and we will text. I watched an episode of Star Trek with a friend once who was going through, uh, they were sort of speedballing the uh, Next Generation series. So we watched an episode together, uh, watched a movie with people that well, my way. My husband and his friends during every basketball game. Yeah, yeah. So you want to synchronize what you're watching. Uh, and uh, so this app is for YouTube, but it lets you communicate and use emoji and do whatever while you're watching the same thing. I think it's kind of cool. Um, and it was reminding me of back in the early days of the web. I think this was late 1990s. There was something called uh, – it was funny. It was by a guy whose name was similar to mine. I would sometimes get email. People would come to me and say, aren't you Den Deichman? I'm like, no, no, I'm Glenn Fleischman. You're looking for – his name was very similar. Um, and he had like a – I think it was called School Bus. And it was some – I don't. It wasn't. Was it JavaScript? I don't know how he pulled it off. Probably some plugin. But you could all browse the web at the same time, and one person would be the leader, and lick and click through links, and it would take everyone else with them. And I thought. And there's been plenty of stuff since then. But I think the uh, simultaneous shared, uh, virtually you know connected experience is kind of a fun thing. Yeah. Very. Very cool. It's like um, we were thinking that it would. We. we like so, this app. I mean, the, the in, another interesting thing about this app is so, like YouTube, of course, is a Google service, and this app came out of a Google incubator, and it's iOS only. So um, that was, you know, a little quirk. But um, we were thinking, yeah, as fun as it would be to watch YouTube's with people across the world, like maybe it would be more fun to, you know, because people do this with sports, they do this with like The Bachelor, and you see people kind of like tweeting and and texting about things in real time, but. But um, that's impossible to do with things like Netflix and, you know, like when um, a new season of uh, of Transparent drops mm. on Amazon, mm-hmm. like you can't you can't watch that together. Um, so like people try to kind of do that with hashtags and they'll sort of, you know, uh, arrange this in a, a lower tech manner but it would be sort of cool if some of those over the the air um you know over the top uh services had kind of a social component um mm-hmm. like netflix could do like sort of a, a dual screen thing where you had netflix on your tablet had like the, your, the faces of your friends and then netflix on everyone's tv was showing you know the same thing at the same time so if you're watching a scary movie together like you know the the tense moments would be like <laughs> synced up and it wouldn't be like okay we're all gonna press play three two one like that that'll never work so you don't go to so, the bathroom that way either yeah um you know maybe that's that will be one of the things that kind of puts one of these services over the top because they're all kind of the same right now i wouldn't really uh, trust Apple to do it because they're um, social, not really their strong point, but maybe maybe someone else maybe they will. Could, they could revive Ping and use that. Could be the yeah, Ping service. right? That's Ping 2.0. That's right. Well, Google is great with social too, aren't they? Buzz, wave, spaces. <laughs> they're Google terrific. Bus. 
Um, I think we have reached the end of the required number of topics for this week because it is almost an hour, which is, dear listeners, our attempt to uh, keep things uh, to a reasonable length. Hopefully it, we'll get some new products soon yeah. to talk about. Um, and the, the uh, Caitlin and Leah are at South by Southwest this week, so they're filing stories and videos from there. So check out Macworld if you want to know what's happening down in Austin. Sounds good. Lots of breakfast burritos coming from Caitlin, I see. Yep, tacos all day. Yeah. Um, so, folks, you can find us, macworld.com, facebook.com slash macworld, podcast at macworld.com. We'll send an email thing to our ma- mailboxes. Uh, Susie is SFSUZ, S-F-S-O-O-Z on Twitter, and I am Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F, where you should not follow me. Well, I don't know. My volume's, <laughs> low. My volume's lower these days, but I'm not sure. Maybe you should. But you can find you us can all those places. You can just mute him now and then. I'll just mute him for like a day. And then when he comes back, I'm like, hey, he's back. Exactly. Sometimes I <laughs> sometimes I go after. I, I'm tweeting. I would say my volume is enormously lower than it used to be because I'm using less. You're a busy guy these days. That's right. I'm, trying, I'm doing all this letterpress printing. This prints right. and posters and things. Um, but Susie, great to talk to you again. You too. See you next week. See you next week. And this has been episode 550, our big 550th celebration episode. Well, it's just, <laughs> just a number for March 15th, 2017. And we you don't will... look a day over 545. Aww. <laughs> I'm feeling all of 545 going on 550. Uh, and uh, we'll be back next week, folks. 